Well, do me a favor and grab a Bible if you can and find your way to Ephesians chapter 4. We're continuing our series on the church and we're looking at passages that help us understand who we are, God's designed for us, what we're to be doing, and those sorts of things. So Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 to 16. I'll read it here in just a minute, and then we'll pray, and we'll get to work. I'm feeling a little uh, needier than normal. I'm always needy, and when I stand up here, I'm praying that God would anoint and uh, equip me for the task at hand, but this week was a bizarre one. We uh, bought a puppy, which... I know, yeah. Some of you are like, <gasps> like shock right now because I grew up on the tree farm with all the dogs and I was the black sheep of all the Williams clan that said, you know what, I don't know if I need a dog. And everyone's like, how dare you? Um, <laughs> get out of here. Go live in Roscoe. You can't live here. Um, but finally, uh, my family broke me down. They wore me down and uh, my, my wife and daughter and son were so thrilled and they're like, you know what, let's do this. Let's get a little puppy and... Um, yeah, it just so happened to coincide with the timeline of the uh, transition of our site into a, a, an autonomous daughter church. And so I'm like flying high, like, this is wonderful. And on that night, they're like, what do you think about a dog? I'm like, well, man, I can't say no now. So um, we got a dog and, uh, you know, it's just been a crazy week, but it's been good. And on top of that, I'm finishing up my master's degree and, you know, we transitioned our site into an autonomous church. So there's all kinds of extra work and, you know, touring uh, a, a potential church facility and things like that. So this week has just been a bizarre one for me and I'm feeling a little scattered. So uh, be gracious with me if I get lost in my notes, but let's go ahead and um, read the text and then we'll pray and we will get to work. This is Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1. It reads, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined together, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let's pray. 
Lord, we ask right now as we open your word that you by your spirit would speak to us. We're grateful, God, that we can be a community of faith, that we can be a church, that we can be your church. And we're praying, Lord, that you would set the agenda for us, that you would help us to pursue the things that matter deeply to you, and that by your spirit, you would inspire us and equip us to do these things well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What we find here in the writing of the Apostle Paul is a call for the church to be two things, unified and mature. And they go hand in hand, and actually they complement one another, but this is the vision for the local church. The local church is to be a place where there is relational beauty, where we are pursuing unity together, where we are working in harmony with one another, and therefore we are growing into maturity in Christ-likeness. So, as you, you might ask the question, okay, Core, Park City Church, what do you hope that becomes? What do, what do you, what's the vision for this thing? You know, as you think three to five years, as you think, you know, 25 years, what do you hope Park City Church will be? And here in this passage, we're reminded that the agenda given to us is unity in the body while we pursue maturity together. So whether we kind of fill out the vision statement in a variety of different ways, we might say, yeah, we want to be, you know, these sorts of things. Here's the compelling vision. Are you guys on board? Let's charge after this thing. Or we might be like Eugene Peterson, who says, essentially, I'm a little bit allergic to vision statements. I just kind of want to allow God to have freedom to kind of send us wherever he wants to send us. However, we would fill that thing out as we consider the future. And I do have some ideas for it, but let's just say this morning... When we think about what we want to be as a church, we've got some clear marching orders here. We want to be mature in Christ. We want the body to be built up. We want people to attain to the measure of the fullness of Christ. We want to become a mature body, and that will involve relational unity. There it is. As we think about what we need to be doing together, we need to be pursuing unity as we grow in maturity. So let's get to work. Two things here, unity and maturity. We find unity in verses 1 to 10. And it is this call to live in a manner worthy of the good news of the gospel. Look at verse 1. Paul writing says, as a prisoner for the Lord. He's writing, and, and in a sense, there are two different meanings here. He, he literally is incarcerated. He has been faithful to the good news of the gospel that has landed him in trouble. There's persecution. He gets arrested. Uh, he's incarcerated, and he's writing letters to the various churches, including this church here. And he says, as a prisoner of the Lord. But not only is he in chains, literally, he is bound to Christ. He is a prisoner to Christ in the sense that he wants to do whatever Jesus wants him to do. Harrison uh, has been asking Ash and I lately, I don't know where this came from, it's weird, but he says, am I your slave? A <laughs> uh, little six-year-old boy, and he's looking at mom and dad, and he's asking, am I your slave? And we're like, what, what do you mean by that, dude? You're, no, you're not our slave, you're our boy, and we're going to say some things to you, we're going to expect for you to listen, but we're going to do that because we love you, and you know, when we're, when we're parenting well, it's in your best interest. And so we're trying to explain this stuff to him, uh, and, and he kind of you know, said, okay, that's fine by me. I'll listen to you as long as it looks something like that. Well, when Paul is, when Paul is writing here, he's saying, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I'm in chains for him, but I'm also bound to whatever he wants to do. I'm, I'm compelled to listen to his voice. I'm compelled to follow his leadership and his way. And 
surprisingly, often what the Lord leads us into is not what we would expect. So here's what he says. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So church family, here's what you need to do. I'm urging you, I'm insisting, please do this. Live a life worthy of the calling to which you have received. Now, I've loved that verse for a long time. I've actually used it in a variety of different places. I remember using it often in youth group and just trying to help young people think about what is it like to live in a manner worthy of the calling? Or it's, um, you know, a, a parallel verse from Philippians says, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And I'd often parade that out in front of students and I'd say, look, it's very important, not only that we would believe in Christ, but our lives would begin to reflect what he's like. So live in a manner worthy of that calling. Live in a manner worthy of that gospel. And I might fill it in with all kinds of different ideas. You should be a person of integrity if you're going to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. You should live in a way that other people can observe your godly behavior. Live in a manner worthy of the calling. I would fill it in with all these different things. Here's what I saw this week, though, that surprised me. That's not what Paul had in mind here. When he describes what living in a manner worthy of the calling is, do you know what it is for him? It's relational unity. He says, live in a manner worthy of this calling that you've received. Verse 2, these are not different ideas. He's filling it in for us. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. He's saying, if you're going to live in a manner worthy of that calling that you've received, it shows up in relational beauty. So we need to be the kind of church that says, this is what we're going after. We are pursuing a life that reflects the beauty of the calling that we have received. Specifically, that means that in relationships with other believers, we are going to pursue unity. We're not going to be a divisive group of people. We're not going to look at others with disdain. We are going to pursue community together. It tells us that it will require our humility. Be completely humble. It tells us that we'll need to be gentle in the way that we deal with each other. It tells us that we need to be patient as other people will often disappoint us. We need to bear with one another. We need to commit to each other for the long haul. So when things are inconvenient, we don't bail. We say we are together in this thing. And we do all of this in a posture of love. So what's it calling us to do then? In relationships, we need to be a humble people. John Stott puts it like this. He says, humility is essential to unity. Humility is essential to unity. Pride, on the other hand, it lurks behind all discord. While the greatest secret of concord, which is an old school word for working together, working in harmony, he says the greatest secret of concord is humility. If we're going to have unity, that means we have to be a humble people. And we're going to illustrate that here in just a minute by looking at the humility of Christ himself. But if we want unity, if we're going to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've received, if we're going to have relationships within here that actually reveal the unity of the body of Christ, we're going to have to be completely humble. Now, this is odd for us because usually the world revolves around us. And we're not humble, we're prideful. And everyone else needs to serve our purposes. But here we're being reminded that the way of the church is the way of being completely humble for the sake of unity. Now, this is a work that is worthy of our time and our energy. In fact, this should be a goal. As you set goals for this, the remainder of this year and the upcoming years, make sure that this lands on your list. 
What is it that we're supposed to be working on? What is it that we can be pursuing together? Verse three, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. So this isn't just kind of kick back and hope that this goes well and hope that you can stay in a healthy relationship with other believers. No, this is, an, this is a work. This is something that's going to require effort. This will not come naturally. This will be a work of the Spirit. This is the unity of the Spirit that we need to make every effort to keep. And we do this through the bond of peace. So uh, the truth is relationships are hard. And you often will bump into other people who have different ideas from you. And it certainly happens in the church. And what we need to be committed to is this agenda. We're going to make every effort to keep this unity of the spirit that God has gifted to us through the bond of peace. We're going we're to work really hard. And we've said this from day one of the existence of our site. We've said we want to we have a gospel culture around here where people come alive to God because we're together in this thing and it is a relationally safe place to be real and vulnerable and transparent and we're going to care for each other well. That's a part of our makeup. That's a part of what we're trying to do. We want to be a church making every effort to keep this unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So make sure that lands on your goal list for the upcoming year. Now, the source of our unity It's not just on us. I mean, we have to work at it for sure, but it actually comes from God himself. It comes from this reality that God is both diverse and unified in himself. And really, it's the idea of the Trinity. And I know that whenever you talk about the Trinity, you're really flirting with heresy uh, because you can misspeak and lead people astray. But uh, for the sake of trying to illustrate this point and what the text is saying, God is showing us here in this passage that he is both diverse and unified, that there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are unique from one, one another in a sense, but they are the same and they are unified in a sense. And so that's what we're talking about. The church gets its unity from God. He is the source of our unity. Also, we get this unity because we're sharing in an experience with God. If you look at the verses four to six, you see these two words show up over and over and over again. It's one and all. One and all. We're sharing in one thing, one thing, one thing, but all of us are sharing together in that. So let's look at it. Verses four reads like this. We'll bullet point it out for you. There is one body. It's not a bunch of different bodies. Christ doesn't have multiple bodies. He's got one body. There's one spirit. You were called to one hope when you were called. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. There's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What's the point that's being made here? Unity is possible because God is unified. And the people of God share together in God. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called, the one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So church fam, this is possible because of God. He's inviting us into an experience of unity because he himself is unified and he draws his people together into a unified experience of him. But then it goes on to say, the church is not uniform, 
Just because we're unified doesn't mean we're uniform. It doesn't mean that everyone's the exact same. In fact, what comes next is this reality that God gives us different gifts, that there's diversity within the body of Christ. Look at verses 7 and 8. But to each one of us, grace has been given us as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What is it saying there? It's using Psalm 68, 18. It's a a psalm of victory where a king is victorious in a battle and then marches back into the city with captives, and then he's sharing the loot of the victory. He's giving gifts to people, and he's distributing them however he sees fit. But this is saying that Jesus Christ has given gifts to his individuals in the body. Each person has been given this gracious gift as Christ has apportioned it. So Christ, being victorious, comes to us, comes to his people, and he says, Mel, you get this gift. Danny, you get this gift. Tricia, you get this gift. Cor, you get this gift. And he's just giving them out. And he's saying, look, I'm victorious. Look at what I obtained for all of us. You get this, you get this. And he just gives it out. But he's apportioning it however he sees fit. And they're not all identical. They're different. There's going to be different giftedness within the body. But Jesus himself is giving these gifts to us. So each person who's a part of the church has a spiritual gift, a spiritual giftedness that Jesus himself designed for you. He gives it to you, and it is the spoil of his victory that he's able to say, you get this, you get this. Here's what you're called to do then. Use that gift for the building up of the body. But he then is explaining to us that there's a diversity. So the question that I was asking is, what do spiritual gifts have to do with unity? What do spiritual gifts have to do with unity? And, And the thing is, the reason why his mind, Paul's mind goes from, we are called as a church to be unified in our relationships and then he, then he moves into this idea of spiritual giftedness. The reason why he does that is often the conflicts that happen in church are because of our spiritual gifts. Now, I know that sounds absurd. You might even think, Cor, are you sure you want to say that? But I think the reason why we have conflicts within the church is because of our spiritual giftedness. I'll try to illustrate it for you, and um, hopefully it'll click for you. But when you think, let's, let's start with your place of employment. Okay, when you go, go to work, where do conflicts usually come up? Where, where do you usually experience conflicts and why do they happen? Well, in my time with you, as you guys share different stories about your work and frustrations that you have, here's what I discern. Most of the conflicts at your work happen because other people are not doing what you expect them to do. So whether you're in a small business or a huge organization, it's always that you've got some ideas for how things ought to be, and then you have to work with other people, and they're not doing it the same way. They've got different ideas. So if you're in a factory, for instance, there's a young man from our church in a a factory. He's doing his job. He's working at his station, but he's on the factory floor with other people. Now, do you know what the problem for him is? There's other people in there, and they're not doing it right. They're doing things in their way, but it's making his work harder, okay? So they're doing their thing, and it's frustrating him because he's doing his work, and he understands how it could go really, really well, especially if they would just do their job right. If you're in a big organization, here's what it usually sounds like. It's departmental. So you're like, you know what the problem with our company is? Sales. Those people are the worst. They keep making all these promises. They don't understand what it's like back here. They keep making all of these promises, and they're just making my life miserable. 
or flip it, you go, you know what the problem is, is those engineers slowing things down. They keep making all these promises of what they're going to do. And so, so regardless of, you know, the situation or the place that you work, it's always other people that are frustrating you. Conflict is always coming on account of other people and specifically on your expectations of what they should do. But here's what, we're, here's what we have to acknowledge. When we're doing that, really it's a posture of pride where we're saying everything revolves around me and if these jokers would just get on board with what I need to do, my life would be a lot better. My life would be much simpler if everyone would just do things that would help me do my job. Um, and here's what we're doing. We're running, our, we're running our experience through our own grid of evaluation. We're looking at what we want. Now, here's my point. That same thing happens in the church. That same exact thing happens within the church. We evaluate the church based off of our own expectations. We evaluate the church based off of our own preferences and our own desires and what we think would make life better for us. And here's the thing that I've noticed. Often our evaluation comes in the form of our spiritual giftedness. Let me, let me try to explain it to you. Whatever your spiritual gift is, that's what you're most passionate about. So you feel that God is wanting this thing to happen and he has given you a gracious gift and he goes, here it is, here you go, you get to use this. And you get so excited about that. And you're like, man, the church would be amazing if we can all get on board with this one thing. And you start to evaluate the church through your grid of your giftedness and your personal preferences. And you start to think, you know what's, and I get these emails, so I'm well accustomed to it. You know what's wrong with the church? You know what would make the church better? And in every case, I'm willing to, I'm willing to wager, it is the person expressing their spiritual giftedness. If the church would do this, things would really happen. So, for instance, let me try to tease it out a little bit more. If you have the gift of serving, you start to think, you know what? If everyone would serve, can you imagine what church would look like? If everyone would volunteer and serve in some capacity, church would be incredible. Think about all the things we could do together. That's your spiritual gift, and you're, you're feeling passionate about it, and you're right. That's a good thing. And imagine if the whole church served in the way that you did. But here's the, here's the underbelly of it. Sometimes we look at other people and we go, you know what's wrong with the church right now? People are bums. They don't serve like me. You hear that language? That's pride. That's spiritual pride. You're saying, look, look at what I do. Now, if everyone else would get on board with, with what I feel passionate about, then we'd really be moving in the right direction or serving the community. Some of us feel, feel called to serve the community. And that's a good... It, really, really good thing. And you start to think, you know what's wrong with the church? We're not out in the community serving in the way that we should. And so that's the problem. If everyone would get on board with that, if everyone would be more like me and just want to get out there and kind of lead the charge on serving other people, then we'd really be moving in the right direction. And on and on and on. We could fill that in with missions. We could fill that in with, you know, specific demographics that I think our gifts sometimes are drawn to, kids, youth, men's ministry, women's ministry, and we begin to kind of fill in, look, here's what the church needs. And I'm willing to, to wager what you fill that in with is some expression of your spiritual giftedness. That's why Paul is saying, guys, we have a calling and it is a calling to unity. And we have to recognize the diversity of gifts 
We have to recognize that Jesus himself apportioned gifts as he saw fit. And if we're going to be unified, we have to honor one another's gifts. Look, look at verses 9 and 10. We have to follow the example of Jesus Christ. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended into the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And you might go, I have no idea, dude, what you're talking about. You got him going up, you got him going down. What are we talking about here? Is it talking about, you know, Christ going to hell? Is it talking about, you know, what he, what's, it, what's this talking about? And I think the, the easiest way to answer it is, is talking about his humiliation. If you read Philippians 2, what does it describe the ministry of Christ as? He humbled himself. He descended. It, it, as Philippians 2 just says, he got lower and lower and lower. He became a servant. He became obedient even to death on a cross. He's descending. But then what happens after that? He ascends. It, it gets to a point, it gets to a crescendo at the end of Philippians chapter 12 where it says, but he has been exalted and given a name above every name. And at that name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. John Stott puts it like this. What's in, what's, what's in Paul's mind here is not so much descent and ascent in spatial terms, but rather humiliation and exaltation. What, he, what Jesus does for us here is he models what we're talking about. He is humble enough to love other people, that he descends, he lowers himself, and therefore other people are able to benefit from his ministry. So when we think about our spiritual giftedness, we need to recognize we need to be, as Paul said, completely humble. Meaning God has given you a gift, but don't puff yourself up with it. Use it for the sake of other people. God has given you a gift, a spiritual giftedness. The, the goal is not to try to beat people down with it and say, look, you should be more like me. The goal is to say, I have this for you. What Christ has given to me is for your benefit. And if I can find appropriate expressions of it, then the whole church is going to get better. So here's what we find then. We're being called to unity, not uniformity. There's tremendous diversity within the body of Christ. Um, Park City Church, we are a very diverse group of people. On account of the giftedness that we have, the different uh, age ranges that we cover, we are a diverse people. And honestly, I, I would love to make all kinds of promises about how we could organize so everyone would have an opportunity to leverage their gifts in, in more and more ways. But the truth is we're a baby church and there's a lot of chaos right now and disorganization. And so to think we're going to streamline everything so every person can find their gift and use it perfectly, that's unrealistic. It's unrealistic to have ideas of kind of the big church mentality that many of us come from and we think it's just going to look more like that. This is going to be a well-organized plan. Everyone knows their gift. Boom, bing, bang, boom, here we go. No, it's going to be messy. In fact, we're babies. You're going to see that in just a moment. We're, going to, we're babies and we're going to make a mess. But we need to have the posture of Christ with humility. Yeah, Zion, he's making my point. Um, <laughs> we need to have the humility of Christ so that we could serve other people with the gifts that have been given. So secondly, we find maturity in verses 11 to 16. Christ has given gifts for the sake of the church. Look at verse 11 and following. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. In other words, not only did Jesus give individual gifts to everybody, he also gave the church itself 
a variety of different servants, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. He gave all these different individuals and categories then that could help the church. And I find it interesting that over church history, this has been highly debated of what these different groups are and their role within the church and things like that. And um, it's ironic because honestly, in a passage on unity, we should not be dividing over what we think about these different concepts. But at any rate, they're all ministries of the word. They're all ministries of speech. And they are given, and it's made plain here in verse 12, in order to equip the people of God for works of service. The way that we think about ministry at Park City Church is we're not trying to do ministry for you. We're not trying to create programs that will accomplish the ministry, and you can opt in or opt out depending on, you know, your schedule that week. No, no, no. We design ministry in order to equip you to do the ministry. We're a missional church in the sense that we want the um, Sunday morning experience to really be a propellant that's just kind of supercharging you and sending you out in the power of the Holy Spirit to represent Christ well. We want you to be equipped to do this works of service. So whatever the gifts are, they are for that purpose. The purpose of the giftedness is in order that the church might be built up. Look again at verses 12 and, and then 13. It says, so that the body may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The giftedness of the body is for the sake of our maturity. Jesus himself gives gifts so that we might be built up and we might experience this unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, here's what's really interesting about this verse and one that's coming up as well. There's a singular reality about the body of Christ. And I think all too often what we read is we, we think, here's what the goal is. It's mature individuals. But that's not what the text is saying. It's saying the goal is a mature body, singular. It's a mature community. And we actually can't become mature unless we're in that community. So to think that you could become a mature Christian without any reference point to the local church, that doesn't make sense in the New Testament. You can't just think, I'm going to do my own thing, and all those jokers out there, I mean, church right now, it's a mess. Coming out of COVID, it's a mess. But I'm going to be faithful, and I'm going to be mature. That doesn't make sense. Maturity is attained within the body. Maturity is the body growing together. Maturity is when our relationships actually begin to embody what Christ himself is intending here. So that's what the gift is for. It's for the building up of the body until we can attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ that he has for us. Well, there's a threat of immaturity. The problem is growing in maturity together, that's unnatural for us. That's hard for us. We're we're immature. We're infants. Look at verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. There's a spiritual immaturity that's being described here as being an infant. Here's the truth. Infants aren't safe, right? We got a puppy this week. You know what I have to do? I have to just watch this puppy and be like, her name's Winnie. I have to be like, we're out in the yard. Okay, Winnie, you need to go potty and then we can get back inside. I have to be like, Winnie, you can't eat that. 
You can't eat that bark. You can't eat that, you know, weird stuff in the grass. You can't eat those mushrooms. Facebook posts are saying dogs are dying from eating mushrooms right now. So I'm like chasing this dog around going, you're, you're at risk of dying because you are an infant, right? You don't have that understanding yet to know what maturity looks like. And the truth is in the church, it's the same. We're infants. We're spiritually immature people who there are threats of danger and we're not even aware. There are threats of danger coming at us and we're, we're these infants and the goal is that we would mature and we would become, you know, attaining this full measure of the fullness of Christ. But in the meantime, we're like these babies that need to be corralled and we're making a mess. We're chewing stuff up. We're, we're you know, doing things we're not supposed to do. We're going to the bathroom in different places. We're, we're just a mess. But the goal for the church is that we would actually grow up in maturity. And in fact, it mixes metaphors here because it goes from being an infant to also being somebody who's being tossed around on a boat. That's what it looks like to be immature. You're being tossed back and forth by waves. You're blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. The problem with an immature church is false teaching. An immature church doesn't know any better. And so we're tossed around by these different ideas. And with the internet now, It is so easy to find teaching that you love, but that would deeply concern me. There's all kinds of teaching that's available to you that you can just go online and you can listen to it and you can just be like an infant on a boat, rolling around, being tossed back and forth by by all kinds of waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and cunning and crafty people and their deceitful scheming. So we have a responsibility to one another. If, If I had a baby... And I just said, here's my baby. I'm just going to set it down here and hope that it grows into maturity. But I'm not really going to look after it very well. That would be irresponsible at best. Punishable at worst. You, you want an unsafe individual to be cared for well so they might grow up. That's the role of the church. The church is a people who are pursuing unity and maturity together. We need each other. We actually need each other to attain to this full measure of Christ. Look at verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. That's what we're called to do. There's an opportunity, and it is to speak truth in love. Truth, the the honesty of Scripture, what God says, and love, the desire for the good of the other people. And those have to go together. Because if you emphasize one over against the other, you get in trouble. If you have truth and you think, I am a faithful individual, I love truth, you're brutal, right? Other people who aren't measuring up to your expectations, you're just mean to them. And you're like, well, I'm faithful and not everyone's going to like that. That's truth without love. Some of us are, are all love and no truth. And we're like, whatever, you know, like, ah, oh, truth is just kind of, you know, it's, depends on the situation and the person. But at the end of the day, I just love people. I just want them to be, I just want them to feel loved by me. And that's sentimentalism. And it's not helpful because if you leave off truth, you can love somebody, but you can steer them incredibly wrong. What are we supposed to do as a church? Both. Speak the truth in love. Care enough about people that you actually say what the Bible says, but also care about the people. Don't just say mean things for the sake of faithfulness. Say them in the way that will be most likely to be received 
and followed through on. Speak the truth in love. And while we do that, when we do that, then we become a mature body. We grow up. When the church becomes, I said it like this last week or the week before, almost like an echo chamber. So you've got like the ministry of the word and it's happening in groups then. It's kind of resounding. It's like there's a, there's a message from God, but then it's spilling out into the actual community. So it's not like, oh, I just come and I download, you know, that 30-minute talk, and then I'm good for the week. No, no, no. It's like this is, this is a part of it, but then it actually goes away from here. And over lunch, you go, let's talk about that sermon. What does that mean to actually live this thing out? And we speak the truth in love to each other in our families and in our relationships. And then it happens in groups and people get together and they go, look, I want to figure out what does it look like for me to live out the implications of the gospel. And I'm speaking the truth in love and we're sharing these ideas and we're keeping each other accountable. And it's just kind of resounding throughout the community itself. When we do this, when we speak the truth in love to each other, then in every respect, we become the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ himself. Verse 16, from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. There it is as we wrap this up. The idea is that we need to be a unified people who are pursuing maturity together and every one of us has a role to play. Every single one of us has a job to play in this growth project. Each one is doing their part. We will build ourselves up in love following the leadership of the head himself, Jesus Christ. And we will become the mature church that Jesus wants us to be. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking right now that you would help us to pursue your vision for the local church. And I'm praying that you would give us the courage to make every effort to pursue this way of unity through the bond of peace. Would you help us to prioritize that over against anything else that might be a good idea right now? Help us to be the kind of community of faith that is experiencing the unity of the Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would help each of us to leverage our gifts, not for our own glory, but for your glory and the good of the church family. Help us to know what our giftedness is and then not to use it against other people, but to use it to bless other people. And as we do that with that complete humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love, would you be pleased to grow your church into what you want it to be? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.